Good morning and welcome to Lakeside. We're glad that you're here with us. It's possible by how we think about things to sort of change the way that we experience them in the moment, that how we think affects just as much what we're going through as as the circumstances surrounding us. I have this just very visually uh, and practically, tangibly displayed for me on Wednesday evening. I was uh, landing on a, in a plane on Wednesday evening from Orlando to Akron. Now, the weather changes very drastically here in Northeast Ohio, so you might not even remember what the weather was on Wednesday evening, but it was a lightning storm. And I was coming down in that storm, packed out plane. And I don't know why, but just for some reason, I wasn't nervous at all. Just, it, I, I wish I could say it was something spiritual. I, you know, I prayed, God talked to me or something. Nothing like that. I just... The thought just came to me, you know what, the person least interested in going into a dangerous situation is the pilot, right? And so if he's going in, I, I believe that this plane is going to land. But once we got through the clouds, the lightning was just going on. I mean, the sky was lit. And I could tell that the people on my left and right weren't necessarily as confident that the plane was definitely going to land. So we experienced it very differently. I just, I'm like, we're going to land. So I'm looking, I'm like, this is cool. I mean, this is, how often do you get to see lightning from this vantage point up in the sky and just see how the light spreads out? This is sweet. And this uh, young mother next to me who is just excited to see her two-year-old boy, Benjamin, as soon as she gets on the ground, I can tell she's a little nervous. And so I just leaned over and I said, I promise, once we land, you'll have thought this was really cool. And she looked over at me and she said, yeah, once we land. (laughs) But if we can believe it, that there is an end, that safety is going to be at the end, it does actually change the way that we can perceive things. And that's very much true in this story that we're going to look at in Genesis 43 in Joseph's life. There are certain things that if the people can come to and believe, believe about God and believe about what he is doing, it can transform the very ways in which they experience what's going on and All the more for us as we're looking back on these stories and we know what the end story was. We know what the end game was that as we read these, they're not just meant to be information that we gather, but that our own faith is built up to say, yeah, God is that great and God is that good and the promises are that sure. So I invite you now to open your Bible with me to Genesis 43. This is in the first book of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at page uh, 36 is where our passage starts. And we're going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 43. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, 
the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And so the men took the present and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men or to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, Is it because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that were brought into the house so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys? And so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said to him, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that's an abomination to the Egyptians. 
And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. And that concludes our reading. Just to catch you up in case you haven't been with us as we've been going through the story of Joseph and might not quite get some of the, the nuance here and, and why all of a sudden Joseph would be so overwhelmed with emotion that he'd have to go into another room and just begin to weep. These men are in a, a very desperate situation, and so we've entitled the message From Desperation to Celebration. In the immediate situation, they're desperate because there's a famine and they don't have any food. But these brothers were also guilty of an incredible sin about 20 years earlier in their life where they betrayed and sold their younger brother named Joseph. And what none of them know is that the person that they're on their way to meet and that they're going to try to get more food from is the very brother they sold into slavery some 20 years ago. He recognizes them, we found out last week, but they don't recognize him. He was 17 when they last saw him. Now he's 20 years older than that. He's acquired a lot of power, a lot of status. He's probably dressed in the best clothes possible, and he can speak now fluently with the Egyptians. He's not speaking their native tongue, and so they don't recognize him. And it's not until two chapters from now that he's going to reveal himself to them. But they're in a desperate situation because physically they need food. They're also guilty of something that they need forgiveness for. What they did was wrong. There's no way to to justify it, no way to explain it. And so it is because the very person that they're interacting with is the one against whom they've sinned that Joseph breaks down and and he weeps and he has to excuse himself. But first, we're going to look at this family together, and they're in the land of Canaan. So when we open our Bibles, it says in verse 1 that the famine was severe in the land. And this this family is caught up in this. They don't have enough food. Uh, the, The brothers had returned the first time from Egypt and come to their father. And when they came, they were missing one again. They all didn't come back home again, just like it was 20 years ago. And what they say to their father is, You know, this person there who's in charge of all the food, he was saying that we're spies. And he wants us to prove that we're not spies by coming back here and bringing our youngest brother, Benjamin, back. And only if we go back with Benjamin will he be merciful to us. Will he actually give us the food that we need? And when Jacob heard that, now this second time in his life that his family went out to a journey and one didn't come back, you just, you say, I, I can't do that. I can't, I can't risk losing Benjamin. I've already lost so much. The wife that he loved the most had already died. His favorite son in his mind is already dead. And so just, I, Simeon's, I don't know, maybe he is in prison or maybe he's already dead, but I, I just can't keep losing people. And so the way that chapter 42 ended was even though Jacob understood everything that was necessary for the, his sons to go back, he basically says, no. And just, that's not an option. That's off the table. And so they just waited out. And they waited out, we see in the beginning of 43, until they had eaten everything that the sons had brought back from Egypt. 
We don't know exactly how much time it is, but it's Judah who tells us in verse 10 that they delayed so long that they probably could have made the trip to Egypt and back at least twice already. That's sort of how long it's taking Jacob, the father, to come around to this idea. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to let go of his youngest son, Benjamin, and send him off to Egypt. This is in the land of Canaan. This is the desperation that they're feeling. He doesn't want to do this. And so why does he? That's just how bad the situation was. There was no alternative. If you look in your Bible, in verse 8, Judah, who's trying to get his father to nudge and let them go, he says in verse 8, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. In other words, Jake, I know you don't want to lose Benjamin, but here's the reality. If we don't go, you're going to lose Benjamin. You're going to lose all of us. And we're going to lose our kids. Let me go, because if I go, then maybe you'll live, we'll live, and our kids will live. But that's, those are the options. Guaranteed, if we don't go, the rain hasn't come yet. The famine has not lifted yet. And so if we don't go, we know that all of us will die slowly here. And so he, he says, I'll be a pledge for his safety. Look, be, be mad at me, punish me if something happens to him. But don't punish all of us by not letting me take him with us. The sons knew it. The rules were clear. The Egyptian ruler was specific with them. Don't come back. Don't think you'll get an audience with me if you don't bring your youngest son back. And so realizing that kind of desperate choice, Jacob says, if it must be so, then do this. If he could have chosen any other option, he would have. This is a guy who has tried as hard as he can to not let this happen but now the circumstances are out of his control. He can't make it rain. He's wealthy. We can tell by the gift he's about to give. He's about to send his sons with double money and tons of presents to give to try to appease this guy. So he's someone who's, who's very well off, but he can't buy the rain. And so his family is suffering. So one of the things that he has to learn and realize which he'd been learning actually all of his life, and he affirms it in the form of a prayer in verse 14. If you'll look down, he, he, he comes up with this plan. He sends all of his sons with this money, with all this fruit, and then he says in verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And he offers this prayer. And what Jacob needs to learn and remember, he's already learned this before, but he needs to remember that God rules over all his circumstances. That's what he needs to know, that God rules over all of these circumstances. This famine hasn't surprised God. Simeon being in prison hasn't surprised God. What is or is not gonna happen to Benjamin isn't a mystery to God. From his vantage point, he can't see the way. He doesn't know what the end is. He's nervous. He's not sure the plane's gonna land from where he's sitting. 
And so where his confidence needs to be is not in his knowledge and in his own experiences, but in remembering that none of this has caught God off guard. And he needs to know that God rules over all of these circumstances. That even in this, the most desperate of situations where he would hope for any other alternative way, that God is still in charge and that God still rules and reigns and God is not limited in the ways that he's limited by all that's going on. And so in the land of Canaan, they're experiencing this. And finally, he sends his boys off. And then by this prayer, he's not so much as sending them to Egypt as he is entrusting them into the hands of God. And that's the next part. Here they are. I'm entrusting them in this prayer. May God Almighty grant mercy to you. But your, your future is, it's, it's no longer in my hands. When you go, when you get outside of the range of my ability to see you, I can't do anything for you. And so these sons go from in the land of Canaan, under their father's authority, into the hands of God, out into the wilderness, on their way to Egypt, with all of these gifts, but having no idea what's going to happen when they get there. Because one of the other sins that they needed forgiveness for, well, they weren't sure where the sin was. They weren't sure who to blame was. But they had bought food from Egypt. They took it home. And when they got home, they had all of the money still with them. So that had they been pulled over at any point on the way home, somebody would have said, this is interesting. You have all of the food and you have all of the money. You stole it. No, no, no. We didn't steal it. We paid for it. You paid for it. That's interesting that you paid for it and you have all the money. How did you pay for it and you have all the money? I don't know. (laughs) But I promise we paid for the food. So they're going back, realizing that not only are they being accused of being spies, but now they can very much be accused, and it can be verified that they were thieves. And so they're coming back, and this this whole extra gift is a way for them to try to to have this mercy shown upon them, to to go out of their way to say, "We, we didn't do it on purpose. We don't know how it happened, but we promise we didn't do it. And so they come, and it says in verse 16 that Joseph saw that Benjamin was with them. And so he said to the steward of his house, bring them to the house. We're going to share a meal together. They don't know initially if that's good news or if that's bad news. They think it's bad news. They're like, oh, no. He doesn't believe us. We're busted. We're going to become slaves. That's what they think. They're going to become servants in his house. And everything that they brought to help transport them from Canaan to Egypt is going to be taken from them. They're in the hands of God. But they're worried. They don't know if God is big enough to even rule and reign over these situations. So they try very quickly to talk to the steward and explain to him Look, we didn't, we didn't mean to take the money. We don't know how it came. And so we brought all the money back. It's here. And so that's what we want to show you that we, we didn't steal. Here it is, all of it. And we brought even more so that we can buy more to take it back to home. And then here again, a fascinating reply where God is introduced again, not on their part, but on the part of this steward in the house of Joseph. If you look in verse 23, what does he say to them? They're trying to explain everything about what happened and how it happened. In verse 23, the steward says, Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. 
your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. So what? It's an interesting statement of faith to come from someone that they have no reason to believe knows their God and knows what their God is doing. But that's what they need to be reminded of. That God is not only ruling and reigning over their circumstances, but he, God rules and reigns over their choices. That he's above it all. That when, when they were doing everything they could the best way they knew how, Still, that's not the, 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 the playing field that God is limited to. He has options outside of that. He has options above that and bigger than that. And he demonstrates this, this to them by this steward saying, peace be unto you. This is an important thing to grasp in terms of what peace is. And the Bible talks about peace. You hear Christians say, you know, I, I believe that I have peace with God. And the Bible says we have a peace that passes understanding. This isn't initially a feeling or an emotion. This is a very tangible reality. They thought that these people were going to be angry at them. If you will, that they were at war. And when they try as best as they can to explain their self, and the steward says, don't worry. Peace. You're not at war. We're not against you. Peace means we're not going to punish you. We're not going to throw you in prison for stealing the grain. We believe that God has done this, and so we're declaring to you peace. The peace is a reality. Now, did they probably feel good about that? Absolutely. They went there thinking that they very well could become slaves, and so feelings flowed from it, but the peace that they got, the pronouncement, was You're safe. You're not going to be punished for the choices that you made. Even when when you didn't realize the full implications of them. There was this declaration of peace. And that's the kind of peace that the Bible promises to you and to me. That God can say to us, we will not be punished for our sins. We will not be thrown in jail for the things that we deserve. And when we can believe that, when we can believe that the person in authority, the person who has the ability and has the right to send us there, declares to us, we're not going. It doesn't really matter how we feel. But I'm still sorry about, okay, but I'm telling you, you're not going. I control it. I have the key. And so if I say to you, that there is peace, then there is peace. And when your feelings go up and down, it doesn't change the reality that God has provided for us. Now, we see that for initially, they were excited. It totally affected the way they felt. And what they do when they hear this pronouncement of peace is they don't just sit back and relax. They say, okay, guys, let's make this the best meal we can for Joseph. Joseph isn't there yet. They're not interacting with him yet. They're still interacting with the steward. And so what their hope is, is that by the end of this, they can share a meal together with this person. Again, that they don't even know fully who this is, but they know that he's the one in control. They know that he can do whatever he wants. 
And what they know is that they've just been pronounced peace. So the end of that section in verses 23 to 25, they start to get everything ready. And then when Joseph comes home, he has them stand before him and he starts to ask them questions again. Is your father well? And they say, yes, our father is well. Is this your, the brother that you were talking about? Yeah, this is Benjamin. And then look at Joseph's words to his younger brother in the end of verse 29. He says, God, be gracious to you, my son. This is his biological brother that he hasn't seen for over almost 20 years. He hoped that he was alive and that he was well, but now he can see him and see what he's grown up into and what he's become. And when he has the chance, he says to him, God be gracious to you. At one and the same time, both, uh, you can imagine a, a future wish, you know, may God be gracious to you in an ongoing way, but also this recognition that God's grace has been at work this whole time that he never could have imagined that he'd have this opportunity to see him face to face and to say, in spite of all of the negative circumstances that have gone on, in spite of all of the choices that have been made, that here he is, standing with his younger brother, and it so overwhelms him that he has to leave the room. Because he hasn't, we don't know, if he hasn't decided yet, or if he has decided and now is just not the time, but he has to leave because he's just, he's just, it's hard to believe and he just breaks down. And then it says he has, to, he has to control himself in order to come back in. But this is going to end in our chapter around a table. And so these brothers go from being in the land of Canaan entrusted into the hands of God and now they get to sit at this banquet at the table of grace. The words that Joseph gave to his younger brother, God be gracious to you. Now he says, okay, set the tables up. And what it describes is that they can't sit at the same table because for the Egyptians, it wasn't thought of well for them to sit with the Hebrews. So, but they prepare the feast. They sit down at this table. The only way to explain this is by God's grace. And at the very end, it says, uh, and, and so they partook, and all of them are eating. Benjamin gets five times what everybody gets, but everybody gets Mary. And then if you were paying close attention when you were reading it, there was a footnote on the word Mary. And if you look at the critical comment, at the bottom of the page, it says they became intoxicated. They, got, they, all, they all became intoxicated. That's just what it says. I'm, I'm not making it up. Is it encouraging that? I don't think so. But that's what it says. And it gives us this amazing picture of the extremes that they had. Their situation was so desperate that their father wanted, if there was any other thing that he could do, to do something else and not what he had to do. Just that desperate. There was no food. And when they get to the end, there is so much food and there is so much drink that there's enough for all of them to become gluttonous and drunk. How does that happen? 
this prayer, this blessing that Jacob gives to say, may God Almighty be with you, this pronouncement of peace that they receive, and then this welcome at this table of grace, that there is more than enough than your body can physically handle. And they get to eat, they get to enjoy this. The New Testament, actually all throughout the Bible, gives us this image again and again for us to to picture this in our minds. But here, before we go to, to Revelation, this is what they have to understand, is that not only does God rule over their circumstances and that he rules over their choices, but that God rules over their sin. It's one thing to say that God can work even when we decide one day if we're going to make a left turn or a right turn at a four-way stop. And he can say, okay, I, I, can still, I can still get you where I need you to go. It's quite another thing when, when we can say and believe that God is even big enough and powerful enough when the choices that we make are against his will and against his desires. When we sin, that we can look at our lives and say, but God, I didn't do what you asked me to do. I went against what you wanted me to do. Does, does that limit him? Does that bind his options? Because they did things that they were deserving of punishment for. And one of the things is they're sitting together and able to eat at this table and enjoy this food is, wow, God's, God's even bigger than that. He's more powerful than even our own sin. That we who have no right to sit here and enjoy what we're enjoying can sit here and can enjoy it. How do you explain that? Only if God is bigger and better and rules over and his grace is greater and stronger than even our sin. And that was a song I grew up singing. Grace greater than our sin. That there is no action that we can take, even in our rebellion, that is more powerful than God's ability to heal and to redeem. His cure is always more stronger than our poison. His willingness to seek us is always stronger than our times of running away from him. He's that big. He's that good. He rules and reigns even over us when we sin. And so now I invite you to, as we close, to turn to Revelation 19 because we get this image throughout the Bible, but here it's just the most specific that what, what God is doing in Jesus is to invite all of us who might be overwhelmed by our circumstances overwhelmed by all the decisions that we've made and even overwhelmed by the choices that we've made that have been sinful to say there is a table to which you and I are invited that we can eat and drink with him. In verse 6 of chapter 19, it says, Then I heard, this is on page 1039, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, 
for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to them, These are the true words of God. And that's where we'll stop. So here this image that Christ is one day going to have a feast and he's going to serve food and drink at a table where there is more than enough at the table for anyone who is willing to come and to sit and to enjoy all that God has for them. But the people who come are the people who can say and proclaim that the Lord God Almighty reigns. You have to believe that if you're going to come and enjoy the feast that he has for you. That he reigns over your circumstances. That he reigns over your choices. And that he reigns and is bigger even over your sins. Because if you don't believe that, you'll say, I just, I'm not going to make it there. You don't know what I've done. I've done this. I've done that. There's no, I don't deserve to be at that table. No, you don't deserve to be at that table. And I don't deserve to be at that table. The only people who get to sit at the table are those who are there by God's grace. It's almost a dangerous idea, isn't it? This is risky to say. But if, if we're really preaching grace and there isn't somewhere in our minds this opportunity for it to be misunderstood, then we probably aren't preaching it accurately. Because it can be misunderstood. There's nothing in the pronouncement of God's grace that encourages us to go sin more, that encourages us to, to go do more bad things because his grace is big. It is for those of us who feel like we're despairing, who feel like we're caught, to say, no, you're not. There is freedom. There is forgiveness. You can enjoy this table right here, this food, this drink. You can participate here. There's nothing in that that should make us say, oh, well, then I guess I want to keep on leaving here. I want to keep on going away from this. You haven't got the message. The goodness is that you can come The goodness is that you can and I can be with him. And that he has more food and more drink that all of us, if we were trying our best to consume, we can't wear it out. We can't finish it up. There's more than enough grace, not only for us, but for everybody we know. And so one of the very just practical applications for us as Christians who say we believe this is to be challenged on whether or not we're inviting or, or encouraging anybody else to partake at this table with us. Say, look, I'm here, I'm eating and I'm drinking, and you know what? There's more. There's more food. There's more drink. You can come by his grace if you can come to the place where you can say, our God reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word 
we thank you that these siblings long ago can have had this experience that we can look back on and that in their journeying and in their steps, they couldn't have known the end that we can know. But Father, we pray that you would help us to be built up in faith, to believe that whatever we're going through, there's nothing bigger than you. The Father, disease and sickness is not bigger than you. The endless choices that we have in front of us in our day and age, they aren't bigger than you. Father, all of our sin and all of its ugliness is not bigger than you. Father, if we need to be brought to a place of desperation to see this and to understand it, to where we have no other options, like Jacob, Father, we pray that you would do that. Help us to cry out to you. And in crying out to to see you move and to see you act so that we can one day sing about you, that you reign. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.